This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist's Intrepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power. Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan explore the rails, the trails, and campgrounds of Switzerland on their cycle tour of Europe. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town, heard by talking long and singing songs. And with peaceful friends, there is no richer wine. The Swiss enjoy their reputation for precision engineering, which explains why Swiss watches always keep good time, and why, when they put the same attention to detail, designing and manufacturing a military bicycle to equip the Swiss Army, giving soldiers high mobility on manoeuvres in a nation known for remote forests, mountain meadows and streams, all being difficult for motorised transport to manage. Military bicycles earn a reputation for being so super strong as to be indestructible, fully deployed and camouflaged for mountainous terrain. Swiss soldiers would be difficult to detect and deadly once their bicycles deploy, stowed on front and rear racks of machine gun, ammunition box and bazooka. Within the triangle formed by the bicycle frame, they built in a carry bag and toolbox which contained a banger bike knife and accessories able to repair a broken chain. More often, the tool's corkscrew is crucial to maintaining morale among men living locally camped out in icy conditions to fulfill their military service for Switzerland. Such vigilance and battle readiness serve Switzerland well, keeping the nation free of foreign invaders once the Congress of Vienna upheld Swiss Confederation in 1815, safeguarding its independence since. Only once is there a retrograde step, a resort to violence and force of arms, but it was internal tensions dividing the Swiss cantons boil over into battle in 1847. Civil war which brings home to the Swiss how futile is fighting. While world wars rage round Swiss borders, the Swiss stay resolute. They won't go to war unless attacked. A sentiment echoed by Sweden. is embodied in chiselled natural rock of the dying lion of Lucerne, a sculpture etched in relief in rocks rising above a former quarry, landscapes like an English garden. 
seemed to be resting in his lair, the lion's back legs pulled up against his body, a broken spear protrudes from the lion's side, his countenance registering pain, such as the immense suffering of Swiss guards slaughtered on the steps of King Louis XVI's Tuileries Palace in Paris as revolutionary soldiers attack in 1792, killing at least 150 Swiss guards and 400 revolutionaries left for dead. We are cycling up a narrow street in Lucerne's quaint old town, where rain seems to have set in. We see signs to the Dying Lion Monument, follow the directions, reach a cliff and look up. There it is, a sculpture, chiseled in rock, rising as a cliff. We see a large lion's profile, left front paw droops over the cave entrance, a lion vigilant, sad. We park our bikes near the base of the sculpture. We wrap our rain jackets tighter. Harlequin captures the lion's image in a digital camera. It's a memorial carved two centuries ago by the sculptor to encapsulate a tragedy of 1792 when Swiss guards serving as mercenaries in the service of doomed King Louis XVI pay the ultimate price of war. The idea of the memorial to his fallen fellow soldiers comes from Captain Karl Pfeiffer, who was away on leave, home in Switzerland, when the revolutionaries struck in Paris. He offers the site on his own land in Switzerland, facing the high Alps overlooking the Ruth River, natural features to which foreigners already flock, yet it's controversial. Why this tragedy, when Swiss died for the fatherland in other conflicts? having no elaborate memorials. Others criticize the choice of memorials, saying a massacre should not be so honored as the Swiss guards fought as mercenaries in a foreign jurisdiction. But Captain Pfeiffer won't waver over protest. He insists this statue of the lion in his lair represents patriotism, duty, steadfastness. In 1819, he commissions a Dane, Bertel Torvalsen, to make a plastic model of it, sculptor Pankras Egenschweiler begins chipping away rock. Slowly, the monumental image of the lion emerges from the cliff. In a momentary lapse in attention, the sculptor falls from scaffolding to his ultimate death from injury. It's as if the lion mourns its creator, the ill-fated sculptor, whose chisels bring to life the lion's image in rock. Anxious to finish the lion memorial, the Swiss patron appoints another sculptor to carry on the task. The lion looks like shedding tears for the valiant Swiss guards and the sculptor. The lion's grief pours as teardrops mingling with rain that ripples the pond under the lion's lair.
new sculptor is Swiss and almost unknown, Lucas Ahorn from Constance. Only two and a half years after the massacre, the plaster model of the statue has become a reality, ready to unveil in 1821. Its symbolism lures thousands to Lucerne ever since, to admire the dying lion of Lucerne. It's colossal, six metres high, ten metres long. The day of its unveiling in Switzerland, in August 1821, radicals are protesting, quickly dispersed before they can disrupt the event. A German historian who witnesses that writes, It should have been a national holiday for the entire Switzerland. However, it was just the aristocrats taking part. The streets of Lucerne, full of old people, we wore old women with green spectacles and ugly hats and old-fashioned uniforms of the former Swiss guards. You could think, for the moment, that the entire royal household of Queen Marie Antoinette had risen from their graves. The American novelist Mark Twain visits the statue and describes the old Lucerne in A Tramp Abroad. It matches what we see there, away from busy streets, a gate that's never closed. Mark Twain views it as typical of 18th century romanticism. Yet adds, the statue is the most mournful and moving piece of stone in the world. A group of Asian faces arrive, stay briefly huddled under their umbrellas, then are gone, something to tick on a list, not necessarily understanding. If only they knew, under the lion's paw is the coat of arms of the House of Bourbon. After defeat in the French Revolution in 1792, those who stay loyal to hereditary succession, known as legitimists, a pro-royal faction in France, suffer persecution under the revolutionary rule. The new regime execute King Louis XVI and his wife Marie in 1793, survived by relatives of Bourbon blood who inherit or marry into other European monarchies, such as Luxembourg and Liechtenstein in the Habsburg Empire. Today, one of several pretenders to the French monarchy is a banker, claiming direct lineage through House of Bourbon. Louis of France de Bourbon, a French citizen and direct descendant of King Louis XVI, the last monarch of France. Louis Alphonse, the pretender, is born in Spain and is married to a Venezuelan. In future, their children will doubtless claim the same birthright as does their father in the house of Bourbon. Tout le monde a qui d'une poche oubliée Tout le monde a des restes de rêve Et des coins de vie dévastés Tout le monde a cherché quelque chose un jour Mais tout le monde ne l'a pas trouvé Mais tout le monde ne l'a pas trouvé Sheltering my camera from rain under tall trees, I'll try portraying the garden as it might have been back then. I try to frame my photos with a splash of summer red of flowers in the foreground. The challenge of finding the ideal angle 
overcomes my bid to stay dry, despite incessant rain. Our bike saddles are saturated. Rain now drips down our necks, seeps through the unzippered nooks of our rain jackets. And then it strikes. Suddenly I see, leaping into life in the digital viewing screen, the colossal proportions of the dying lion of Lucerne. Now we know what Mark Twain saw in it. After the massacre of Swiss guards desperately trying to protect a French king, foreign relations for the Swiss are quiet along the frontiers. A century passes in peace. Many Swiss citizens think no nation is likely to invade Switzerland, yet they're wary of joining the increasing unity in Europe, organizations such as United Nations and European Union. A Swiss referendum of 1986 puts it plainly, and 75% of voters oppose joining the United Nations. Sixteen years on, however, another referendum reveals a swing. Now, 54% of Swiss voters favour membership in the United Nations. True to the word of Swiss legislators who promised to act on the referendum result, Switzerland becomes the 190th nation admitted to full membership in the United Nations. What does this shift in Swiss opinion mean? Are the Swiss tiring of neutrality? Dutifully, the Swiss military guarded well their frontiers against aggressors, but none came. So the Swiss government relaxes some rules, now allowing cycle tracks to pass close by the perimeters of military airfields, previously deemed to be a security risk. As foreigners, we are now welcome to go where, decades before, Neither photography nor strangers' prying eyes were permitted. Moves to reduce military preparedness include the demise of the humble but so effective Swiss Army Bicycle Regiment. At its peak, it musters 3,000 cycling soldiers in readiness, riding Swiss-made Condor bikes. After 111 years training to deploy swiftly from where they're based, the Bicycle Regiment begins to phase out from 2002. Swiss strategy long relied on an ability to mount anti-tank weapons on the military bicycles to carry these onto a battlefront swiftly, easier to camouflage than motorized vehicles that too easily get mired in mud, stuck in snow, or blocked by trees and ditches. Proud to share his sentiments on air with the BBC, a bicycling commander tells Justin Webb we can be sitting in a room and, if the call comes for action, we can get to anything within 50 kilometres before the tank boys have even got their vehicles ready. Adding that the combat bicycles are very strong, very heavy. It took all my effort to lift one. I agree. Taking one for a short spin, even unladen Swiss bicycles are about double the weight of conventional mountain bikes. The bicycles come painted in camouflage khaki, billed as the world's toughest bike. Trained on such rugged terrain, no wonder several Swiss cycling soldiers star as Olympic and Tour de France champions. While cycle touring in New Zealand, energetic French cyclist Stéphane Regnier rides a Swiss army bicycle through New Zealand on his odyssey round the world. It endures an arduous journey in livery of yellow paint that peels off under constant use, revealing an underlying car key, betraying its military origin.
This pedigree machine has only seven gears, a single chain wheel and seven sprocket Shimano rear cluster. It comes with a Brooks leather saddle and a steel cover protecting the real derailleur. Despite the bike's obvious strength, Stefan admits to having sometimes broken a few parts. The cause is clear. Where practicable, Stefan advocates cycling cross-country rather than on roads, just as Swiss military bicycles are designed to do. This often leads him on intriguing experiences. Twice, Australian snakes bite him, and twice, thanks to being so supremely fit, he makes it to hospital in time to treat the onset of poisoning. I'm lucky to have good legs, he says. When Swiss cyclists pedal the world, bikes heavily laden, they're often daring to go where others won't. Like their ever-vigilant military, the Swiss cyclist abides by the maxim, Be prepared. In the Schweiss German heart of Switzerland, we make our way to the rail station in Lakeside Lucerne. Little, if any, English language appears on the information board we find in a pedestrian square opposite the station. Among the German notation, Harlecker's younger eyes pick out the word Jukantherbergen on the street map, meaning youth hostel. She whips out a digital camera so as to capture its location. We're on our way, following this photo image, navigating steep streets uphill to the local youth hostel. Tout le monde est une drôle de personne Et tout le monde a l'âme emmêlée Tout le monde a l'enfance qui ronronne Au fond d'une poche oubliée Des restes de rêves Et des coins de vie dévastés Tout le monde a cherché Quelque chose un jour Mais tout le monde ne l'a pas trouvé Mais tout le monde ne l'a pas trouvé Il faudrait que tout le monde réclame Auprès des autorités Une loi contre toute notre solitude Que personne ne soit oublié Et que personne ne soit oublié Tout le monde a une seule vie qui passe Mais tout le monde ne s'en souvient pas J'en vois qui la plie Même qui la casse Et j'en vois qui ne voit même pas Et j'en vois qui la voit même Que tout le monde réclame Auprès des autorités 
Une loi contre toute notre indifférence Que personne ne soit oublié Et que personne ne soit oublié est une drôle de personne Et tout le monde a une âme emmêlée Tout le monde a de l'enfance qui résonne Au fond d'une heure oubliée Switzerland has the highest nominal wealth per adult and the eighth highest per capita gross domestic product. Lucerne, despite its citizens being fewer than 60,000, feels like an even larger metropolis. City motorists are aggressive while still rigidly respecting the road rules. Hundreds of commuter bicycles are neatly parked outside the railway station. We see hundreds more throughout the central city. Long before introducing two-wheeled human-powered cycling, Lucerne was a medieval city of style. Not far from the mouth of the wide Rus River, near where it spills into Lake Lucerne, the city builds several bridges across. The best known is a pedestrian bridge known as the Kapellbrücke, or Chapel Bridge, with paintings that fit into its gabled roof, depicting Swiss mythology and history. On the outskirts of today's Lucerne are ruins of a large Roman legion camp, Vindonissa, near where the Aar River joins the Rus River. Free of domination by foreign invaders today, Switzerland nevertheless finds its independence at risk during World War II and the Third Reich secretly planning but never triggering the invasion of Switzerland to avoid this and stay safe. The Swiss use its well-disciplined military readiness to deter aggressors and shift its focus of defence of the border to planning a long war of attrition from well-stockpiled Swiss bastions high in the Swiss Alps. At the same time, the Swiss make concessions to Germany. The Swiss nation thus attracts spies and political intrigue as major powers conduct espionage and the Swiss monitor signals of theirs. The Allies and Axis nations advance their strategic interests by trade blockades against Switzerland. It leaves both it and Liechtenstein entirely cut off from the world once the rail link through Vichy France is severed in 1942. Nevertheless, Switzerland somehow accepts 300,000 refugees. International Red Cross's Geneva base is crucial to saving their lives. Meanwhile, the Swiss Air Force shoots 11 Luftwaffe planes down that violate Swiss airspace. Responding to German threats of retaliation, Switzerland then alters its policy to force such aircraft to land instead. That's how as many as 100 Allied bombers with their crews come to be interned for the duration. When they stray into Switzerland between 1940 and the Second World War's end in 1945, we won't have to wait so long. In a sense, we're going home as we turn towards Zurich, where we are due to depart on a flight in four days' time. We wonder what might still surprise us in these precious final days of world cycle touring and lasting impressions. Je suis ton pile 
Tu es mon face, toi mon ombrille, et moi ta glace. Tu es l'envie, et moi le geste, toi le citron, et moi le zeste. Je suis le thé, tu es la tasse, toi la guitare, et moi la passe. A tip for today's long distance touring cyclists. A Swiss pass, valid for almost all rail, boat and bus services, may prove a good option. Unless you're determined to pedal every kilometre, this pass, purchased to cover from four days to one month's travel, offers worthwhile discounts on the Jungfrau railways. It can be bought outside Switzerland. Juste pour toi, chanson un peu triste, je crois. Trois temps de mots froissés, quelques notes et tous mes regrets, tous mes regrets de nous deux. Sont au bout de mes doigts Comme doré mi fin Sol, si c'est une chance And we invite you to tune in again next week at the same time on Free FM 89.0 Proudly supported by New Zealand On Air For another in the series Roy Sinclair and his wife Harleko Embarking on trips to countries that they'd only read about That came to love. Till then, cheerio. bien aimé. Dès qu'on me voit, on se sent tout comme envoûté, comme charmé. Lorsque j'arrive, les femmes, elles me frôlent de l'air, regard penché, bien malgré moi, ouais. Je suis le plus beau du quartier. Est-ce mon visage, ma peau si finement grainée, mon air suave Est-ce mon allure, est-ce la grâce anglo-saxonne de ma cambrure Est-ce mon sourire, ou bien l'élégance distinguée de mes cachemires Quoi qu'il en soit c'est moi le plus beau du quartier Mais, mais prenez garde à ma beauté à mon exquise ambiguïté Je suis le roi du désirable Et je suis l'un des habillables Observez-moi Observez-moi de haut en bas Vous ne verrez pas tout comme ça Je suis le favori le bel ami de toutes ces dames et de leurs maris, regardez-moi. Et mon exquise ambiguïté, je suis le roi du désirable, je suis l'un des habillants. Observez-moi.
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.